Well, good morning. He is risen. As we come to our text this morning, we're going to be looking at the account of the empty tomb. Uh, it is uh, from the Gospel of Luke, and as you might know, Luke was a doctor. He was also a companion of the Apostle Paul, and he wrote this Gospel for his friend Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus uh, was a believer, but he wanted to uh, give an orderly account, we read in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, uh, so that his friend might have certainty about the things that he taught. And as we read this text this, uh, this morning and as we study it and as we let it penetrate our hearts, uh, my prayer is that we would have certainty concerning these things. Our faith, the Christian faith, rises and falls on the truthfulness of the resurrection. If you're here visiting today, and maybe you're seeking and wondering, is this true? Be certain of this. The hope of the believer is in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, historically. Our hope, our faith is grounded in that, our religion. It hinges on that historical event. My hope is that we will not only have certainty in this event, but that it would cause us much consolation and joy as we celebrate the resurrection this morning. So with that, why don't we go ahead and read God's word. We're going to be reading Luke chapter 24, uh, verses 1 to 12. Luke 24, verses 1 to 12. You can follow along in your bulletins or in your Bibles. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to remember and to wonder and to marvel at uh, your words and at the reality of your resurrection and what it means for us giving us hope in life. Help us to see that clearly. Help me to proclaim it clearly. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for some of you, you might not be used to some of the rituals that we have here in the Presbyterian Church. Uh, And some of those rituals include repetition of things like our Easter greeting. As we've already said twice, He is risen, He is risen indeed. And um, other things like, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. 
And I want to suggest to you that one of the reasons that we do those ritualistic things is because we are forgetful. <laughs> We're a forgetful people. We are by natural nature forgetful of the things of God. You see this particularly highlighted throughout Scripture in the life of the Israelites of old. As they wandered in the wilderness, they would, uh, they would come to a, a, an event that was uh, difficult. Maybe they had no water or no food. The Lord would provide for them, and then they would immediately start grumbling and complaining again, not a short time later. They were forgetful of the things of God. Now, we see this with the disciples, even here in our text in the gospel accounts as a whole, they would face some sort of hardship and they would be forgetful. I mentioned last week that Jesus had told them explicitly in the gospel of Luke, explicitly three times that the Son of Man had to suffer and die and rise again. And yet we come now to the, the moments before the resurrection and we see different people doing different things. Uh, the, the women are going to the tomb to anoint the body because he had died. That's in, and that's what you did to prepare the body. You see the other disciples sitting up, uh, huddled together, wondering what in the world just happened. And where do we go from here? And there are more times that we see this in the other gospel accounts as well. We remember Thomas and the way he doubted even when the other disciples told him. Yet here they are in our text this morning, these folks, the perplexed, the unbelieving, and those marveling, or one marveling, but we can put John with Peter because we know from the other gospel accounts that John ran with Peter, and John tells us very clearly that he was the faster runner, if you'll remember. <laughs> he beats Peter to the, uh, to the tomb. They, were, they marveled. The women were perplexed. The disciples as a whole were dismissive and unbelieving of the women's report. And even Peter and John marveled and wondered, not understanding what the other gospel writers tell us, that he had to die and to rise again from the dead. So, as a forgetful people, what do we do? Uh, we need to repeat this truth over and over again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And we need to affirm that truth and remind our hearts of that truth, even though it may seem too good to be true. And in some level, it is too good to be true, isn't it? For in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we have hope of the forgiveness of sins and of eternal life. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And as we examine Luke's account, I want to begin here at the, at the darkness in those moments when there was uncertainty and doubt and perplexity as we come to the tomb. I want to read a little bit of the portion just leading up to our text. So this is chapter 23. This is after Christ has died and he's hanging on the cross. And it says, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down 
and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in the stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. And then we come to our text. Notice the women here. The women who, in verse 56, were told that they were with him in Galilee and they followed and saw the tomb. So they they were the same women who were at a distance, if you remember, at the cross and, and observed the cross where many of the disciples fled. There was Mary and Mary Magdalene and the others who were with them, who stood at a distance and watched the death of their Savior. And then as the body was there lying or hanging, they, they, they heard rumor that this Joseph of Arimathea was going to take the body and bring it to a tomb. And so they followed, grieving, wondering what this all meant. See, they were Jesus' disciples they had been loved by Jesus and transformed by his ministry. Mary Magdalene in particular is highlighted in the gospel accounts. I think one thing I read is that she's mentioned uh, more than any of the other women, for sure, and more than many of the disciples, uh, which is remarkable. She had been demon-possessed, and yet Jesus had set her free from that demon possession. And so ever since that moment in Galilee, she followed Jesus. She followed him all the way to the cross and even to the tomb. She was a faithful disciple. And so those women, on that evening, after watching the body being put into the tomb, being wrapped and laid in the tomb, and the stone being rolled in front of the tomb, they went home to prepare the anointing of the body for burial. Now, I want to suggest that for those of you who have walked through the death of a close family member or friend, kind of know this routine a little bit. What do I mean by that? You understand its darkness. You understand the deep grief. But along with that darkness and deep grief, you also understand what it's like to be sort of almost in a fog going through the process of making arrangements. You've done that before. Talking with funeral home directors and pastors and working out details. And so it is here. The women waited through that Sabbath day as they were commanded to do. Nothing could be done. But even before it was light, they set out to do the next thing. To do what needed to be done. And isn't that the case isn't the case that in that grief, in that moment of darkness, you just do the next thing? Well, they go, and as we know from the other accounts, as they were going, they forgot about the stone that needed to be moved. But here, uh, they came to, in the Gospel of Luke, they came, and behold, the stone was rolled away. Who knows? Maybe they thought that uh, Joseph had done that for them, knowing they were going to come. We don't know, but they knew they, 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 as they approached, they were concerned about that, but it was there providentially. And so they went into the tomb. And here's where the veil of darkness still hung heavy over them 
and confused them. They went in, and there was no body. Now, I can't imagine that experience. You've already been devastated. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, who took it? What have they done? Where did they go? Where did they go with our Lord? What, what is this thing, this evil that has been done? They, they're consumed and perplexed by the, the question, what is going on here? And they went in, and there was no body. Interestingly, Luke interjects something for us, the reader, that is unique. You might have missed it, um, because as, as we'll see in a second, it's not necessarily something very striking for our ears, but it is striking if you were just reading through the gospel accounts and you came to this moment before the announcement of the resurrection. What am I talking about here? Well, you'll notice here it says, while they were perplexed, in verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, um, I'm sorry, back up one step. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in into it, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Did that strike you? Maybe not. But in the gospel accounts, this is unique. We see lots of names for Jesus throughout the gospels. Son of man, Jesus, the Christ, Rabbi, Lord, all of those things. But in no cases do we ever see those two words connected in the gospel accounts, Lord Jesus. But right here at this moment, the the gospel writer Luke wants to make a point. Here is the resurrected one. I'm telling you something. These women are perplexed. They're distraught. They're in grief. But I can't help but get ahead of the story. The Lord, the one who commands Death itself, who has rule and reign over all things, is Lord and Savior. Right here. It's lost to us because we would just say the Lord Jesus. That would be maybe a common phrase we might use. But it's an uncommon phrase for the gospel accounts. In fact, it's unique right here. Well, while Luke is hinting to us, nevertheless... The women are bewildered, and they're still in darkness. They can't see it. So enters the angels of the Lord at the moment of bewilderment and darkness. It's like a a shaft of bright light piercing into the shadows, revealing the things as they are. This bright light piercing down. The women, they're awestruck at these, these dazzling men. Now, we know they're angels from the other accounts, but here they're just described as these dazzling Men, there's bright men breaking into the darkness. They fall on their faces in fear. And the angels speak to them. And oftentimes when an angel speaks, it says, Do not be afraid, for I bring you great... You know, this is what we have in the, 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 the accounts of Christmas. But here it's interesting. They don't say, Do not be afraid. And they don't necessarily bring what we might consider at least at the outset, a very comforting word. In fact, it's a question. He says, why do you seek the living from among the dead? Shouldn't they have been ministering angels? Here are these women. They are grieving. They're in tears. They're coming to anoint the dead. And they are lost and perplexed. And you would think the angels would come and they would say, it's okay. 
but they ask a question instead, a probing question of their hearts. Why do you seek the living from among the dead? In other words, the angels were saying, you should have known. You should have understood. In fact, you did know. The angels go on and they say, he is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on that third day and rise. Now, I do think that those angels were bringing a word of consolation. They were doing it by way of gentle, gentle, sort of, hey, it's okay, let's, let's get perspective, let's, let's think about this for a minute. What do you know to be true? Gentle correction. But it's interesting here, grief, I think, has a way of looming so large in our hearts and lives that we become forgetful. Have you ever experienced that? Where you're so clouded by the situation at hand that you cannot see through it, yeah, yeah. Right? There's a, there's a line in a song by a, a folk artist, not a Christian, um, and, and the song is called February. Uh, the, 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 the song author, the singer-songwriter's name is Dar Williams. Uh, and the song is about marriage. It's about a marriage that has gone through a difficult season. And Dar uses the metaphor of a long winter that is finally showing signs of a new life in spring. And she writes these words, and I think it illustrates this feeling of that darkness that clouds our vision and that creates that forgetfulness. She says this, and February was so long that it lasted into March. I feel like that's every February. (laughs) February was so long that it lasted into March and found us walking a path alone together. You stopped and pointed, and you said, that's a crocus. And I said, what's a crocus? And you said, it's a flower. And I said, I tried to remember, but I said, what's a flower? And you said, I still love you. And that forgetfulness that happens to us in the darkness clouds our vision. And I think this can happen in our Christian life. Seasons of trial and sorrow can cause us to forget the very words of God, the promises of God that he has told us in his word. The good word, the word that sometimes seems too good to be true. How do I know that God loves me? How can I know that his grace is sufficient for me? How can I have hope in a life beyond this world? How can I know that there is a world to come that is not marred by war and rumors of war and racism and injustice and all the corruptions of the fall. How can I know that? Friends, we know that because he is risen and he is risen indeed. It seems too good, yet it is a sure word. Remember how he told you. Remember those great and precious promises that are yes and amen. Hear these promises. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means he took upon himself the wrath and curse that we deserved. He loves you. Why? Because he loves you. 
hear this promise. But God, being rich, in mer- being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Friends, grace is sufficient, sufficient to bring us to life. Hear this promise. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life is secured because Christ has died and because he rose again from the dead. Hear this promise. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of, the he- out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus said to, uh, to, to, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asked her this, and I ask you this. Do you believe this? This is the sure word of God. He is risen. He is risen indeed. But maybe you're here this morning wondering how you can be sure his word is true. I just read all those promises, but how can I be sure? And I just want to point out one thing about the text that gives us some confidence. If you are writing a story to convince folks to believe in something, you would not make the adherence to that thing, namely these disciples, out to be those who are forgetful and have little faith. That just wouldn't be the way forward for one very good reason. If it were all made up, right? Mary and Martha start to talk about how do we, how do we spin this? Let's go back and tell the disciples that the tomb is empty. We don't know what happened to the body, but we'll talk about the resurrection because Jesus taught... Maybe it's all made up, and they go and they say to the disciples, hey, here's the story. Now, you'll notice that the disciples are already saying, nope, I don't believe it. Thomas says later, unless I see it with my hands and touch it, there's no way I'm going to believe it. How in the world do they go from that to willingly laying down their lives for the spread of the gospel if it's all made up? I realize that's just one one little small point of reference, and it might not be a sufficient explanation for you, but I want you to consider this. I want to challenge you. What would it mean for you to believe that Christ is risen? Let me, let me suggest a few things. It would mean to have the hope of eternal life. It would mean to realize that your sin does not have the final word. It does not define you. 
You can be forgiven. More than that, you can be loved unconditionally. God loves you. Well, after the encouragement from the angels to remember, the women remember. They reminded, they gently came alongside. Did you not forget what the Lord Jesus says? They, they are reminded, and so they run off to tell the other 11 this sure word. And if there's darkness and grief in our text, there's also doubt. There's doubt. And this is what we he- see here with most of the disciples. Uh, now, the women were told to go and to bear this good news, to bring this good news to the disciples that Jesus has risen. Um, and I just point out the text doesn't tell us it here. It just tells us that they went and did this. But we know from the other gospel accounts that the angels act- actually instructed them, go, tell his disciples that Jesus is risen from the dead. Right? And so they do, they obey. But as they come to the disciples and they share this Wonderful news. The text says, uh, but these words seem to them an idle tale. Another word for idle tale, tale, another way of translating that idle tale would be it seemed like nonsense. It's nonsense. The disciples were like, what you're saying to us doesn't make any sense at all. So they, most of them, they didn't believe them. Now, I just want to point out that it's pretty well recorded uh, in the the, his, the history in, in ancient texts um, that legal cases at the time uh, required if a woman was going to bear, bear witness that there was a corroborating witness they were not taken on their word uh, just just on the outside this surely seems offensive to our modern ears um, we can't imagine that world and while it certainly didn't help that the word of resurrection came from these women. And it was to their shame, to the disciples' shame, that they didn't believe them. Yet, I think the unbelief ran deeper than their low view of women. Right? What do I mean by this? I think their unbelief ran deeper than their low view of women. Our, our issue of unbelief is often not rooted in lack of evidence, but rather it is situated in our hearts. To trust in Christ and in his word means saying that we are not, in fact, Lord. And this fall, this is, for our contemporary world, to say that we are not the master of our own universe and the master of our own destiny is, is to go against uh, the very baseline, fundamental, uh, theological statement of our culture. The most fundamental fundamental, basic theological statement of our culture is to say, I am the definer of myself and all truth. I have my truth, you have your truth, and where these truths don't line up, well, I'm right and you're wrong. That's the world we live in. It's a confused world. And I think that's actually the, the, root, the root problem of sin. This was Adam and Eve in the garden, right? We've talked about this. You go back to the garden, and they took from the tree of the knowledge and good and evil because they wanted to be the arbiters, the ones who decided what was right, what was wrong. That was the fundamental issue of pride. And I think this is at the, the heart of our unbelief. Now, how does this apply to the disciples in the situation uh, that they're in? 
In the midst of their fears and feelings of loss, the disciples thought to themselves, how can I put my hope and trust in Jesus? He has failed me. He is gone. He has left me alone. He, we gave up our livelihood for him. And he then goes off and willingly gets arrested and goes on trial. He doesn't even make a defense of his, himself. He just stands there silently and then goes to the cross willingly. He has abandoned me. If I were in charge, this is not the way that would have gone down. Where the disciples are at. We can, we can relate to that. We can understand that. That in their grief and in their trial that they're facing... In the, in the reality of the situation they find themselves in, where their Lord Jesus is, is missing now, but before that was crucified and died and buried. And here they are all alone, men and women who are likely going to face all sorts of trials and possibly persecution. We can relate to this. When we face those various trials and and persecutions and temptations and the world just seems black and seems to be washing over us and we think, God, this is not what I signed up for. If I were in charge, I would do it differently. This is the nature of unbelief. These are words of unbelief. Oh, Jesus had told them over and over again that this was the way. When it came down to the moment of it, it was much too much for them to bear. They could not believe that the cross was the way of salvation. But this is exactly why Jesus had to die and rise again. Because of our sin, because of our pride, because of our rebellion, because of our desire to be Lord. That's why Christ went to the cross. And he had to break the power of sin. And the only way was through his death and resurrection. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And he rose again for these disciples of little faith. Remember, he meets Thomas in the other Gospels in the unbelief. And he meets us and he gives us the sure word that though we don't see, yet we believe. That's an encouragement to us. Thomas said, you know, unless I see, unless I see it, unless I see it with my hand, unless I put my hand into the scars, into the wounds, I won't believe it. And Jesus gently rebukes him and says, blessed are those who don't see and believe. This is the power of God at work in you. When we can say with full throats, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Finally, and in conclusion, I want to look at the last thing. We've seen how the darkness and grief overwhelms. We've seen how doubt and unbelief persist, but that how the Lord's death and resurrection is is at the very heart or answer to those things. But now I want to look at Peter and John. He's kind of in the background in the Gospel of Luke, but Peter, as he runs to the tomb, we're told that all the disciples, they disregarded the women But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in it. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. He is dumbfounded. He's marveling. He is wondering. 
He is uncertain. He heard the report of the women and the report of the angels, and there he and John sit, and they're looking at this, and we're told in the other Gospels that he and, he and John, they just go back to their homes, and they just, I, I can picture it. They're just kind of, what does this mean? What's going on? A couple of things I want to say about Peter is that I think he's right on when he says it's a marvelous thing. I think he's right on. When we consider the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we look at that wondrous truth, it is a marvelous thing, something we cannot comprehend. It doesn't make sense to our worldly minds, to our earthly minds. How does someone go into the grave and come back out alive? It's a marvelous thing. It's beyond our comprehension. Peter uh, I think still doubted at the moment until he met the Lord Jesus. We'll, we will read if we were to go on in the Gospel of Luke how, how all of this information was swirling around as, as the disciples were headed to Emmaus and the Lord Jesus comes alongside those disciples on the road to Emmaus and there he acted like he didn't know anything and he, he, uh, he starts questioning the disciples and they're like, where have you been? Haven't you heard what's gone on? And then Jesus starts to unfold how all of Scripture, the whole of God's Word, speaks to this moment, to this glorious moment of the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And as they were going along, they're like, wow, our hearts are burning inside of us. And when they get there, finally He reveals Himself. And their eyes are opened. And they see it's a marvelous thing to know this truth. And I, I, I often think as I come to Easter uh, year in and year out, been a believer a long time, but even as a preacher to come in and preach it, I think, what can I say this year that I haven't said last year? Nothing. But it doesn't ever plumb the depths and the riches of the marvelous resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he the King of glory, the Lord of lords, would humble himself to the point of death, taking upon himself our sin, our desire for, for lordship, our pride. He takes it upon himself, and it is crucified on him, and it is crushed, and he is resurrected and brought to life, and he conquers sin and death so that we might have life despite our unbelief and our weakness and our forgetfulness. Friends, let us never stop saying, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray.